0: I've got my
1: Snapchat filter on, just like you. <laughs> Fantastic. Great to right. you on the show today. That's me in half real. So, welcome to the show today. Sorry. And a big hello from Hamburg. After months of sunshine, you can see my little ten here, and the very dry weather, we finally had some heavy rain tonight. So, at least some things are getting back to normal umbrellas are not only being used for tear gas defense anymore yay in the past we had people from around the globe attending our show so please let me know here where you right now just drop it in the chat i already saw some people uh, responding to my questions i placed there if you haven't met me virtually yet my name is ina Feistrotza. i'm the chief editor of the next conference and our various activities Producing the show today with my colleague, René Deutschmann, here in our little studio. With us on the show are my co-hosts, conference curator and moderator Monique van Dosseldoop from Amsterdam and trend watcher and keynote David Matten from London. On today's show, we are joined by another fantastic guest, Douglas Rushkoff. Douglas was named one of the world's most influential intellectuals by MIT and is an author of 20 books. He's a prolific podcaster and documentarian. In his work, he studies human autonomy in a digital age. Douglas, great to have you on the show. Where are you right now?
2: I'm in uh, Hastings-on-Hudson, New York.
1: Fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, we talk to you in a bit, but before that, I would like, like to ask you, the audience, something. Douglas' most recent book is Team Human. We will have a conversation with him about what it means to be on Team Human in these strange times in a sec. But before that, I would like to ask you, what does it mean for you to be on Team Human? And are you really? Have a think and please let me know here in the chat or if you are watching this on YouTube in the comments. Also, if you have any questions for Douglas, throughout the live show, please let me know and I will forward your questions to him. And just one interesting observation I quickly wanted to share with you before I hand over to Monique and David in preparation for the show today with Douglas, I found an almost historic Internet page. It is called Technorealism, a movement brought forward amongst others by Douglas, um, which back then was, um, had the approach to have a more nuanced and realistic um, take on the internet and digitalization. There you can find a manifesto starting with the following. Technologies are not neutral. The internet is a revolutionary, but not utopian. Government has an important role to play on the electronic frontier. This was written in 1998. I think it was the year I got my first mobile phone. And I thought it was amazing that all these thoughts were already there back then, 20 years ago. And so you could copy and paste them, especially right now when big tech companies still have not realized, or are just about to start to realize the scope of their actions. More on this in our news of the week. So let me hand over to David and Monique to hear our regular roundup of this week's news from the world of digital innovation and business monique david what have you got for us
0: oh well what did we bring today um i actually am completely obsessed by online events and video communication so i decided this week i'm going to bring you one topic and that's what's happening with video now right now the whole world is obsessed with Zoom or any other of the video tools and they are used everywhere. I mean, video walls are the way that this year is putting humanity together in a way. Now, the first example that I would like to show is it comes from Denmark where the football club AGF invited their friends to be present at their first game since the lockdown via video because they couldn't come to the stage. So they have this huge video wall and everybody's calling in and waving and cheering for the goals and so forth. And uh, another example this week in the Netherlands, we had in one of the uh, Black Lives Matter protests. There was a small square that couldn't fit in more people. So they put up a huge video wall so more people could join the protest. So. Yeah, video is doing something and and people are now using video to play games and visit relatives and, you know, do trivial pursuit or cook together. So video, I think we need a new language when we use this video, a new sign language. At the bare minimum, we need a clear universal, you know, sign for unmute, you know, unmute, unmute. So that, that would be a good start. But a lot of people are thinking about this, you know. There's a guy called Daniel Glazer, neuroscientist and writer. He, he speaks a lot for audiences, and he tries to involve his audience by saying, "Okay, wave your hands. So do, be fast for yes and slow for no. So you have a visual impression of what your audience wants." Um, and, and another example that I saw this week it was really interesting. This. Thingscon is a a network of uh, makers, they got together for a day. So first of all, they got together in video, had their own video rooms, met throughout the day, helped each other with projects. But what they try to do is come up with interesting projects that connect things to video calls, adding an extra layer of communication to the Zoom panopticon. So uh, like being able to give a simple poke under the table to somebody in the call, you know, connecting to somebody another way or um one project was put the colored light on so you can see the light on somebody's face red blue yellow that responds to their opinion about something so other ways of using video i brought two other examples and then i'll shut up um the first one maybe some people have seen this was matt reed um, this is the next example to show, but this is a fun one. He made an AI-driven stand-in of for himself for Zoom calls, and he actually responds, I has some set response. Super fun, but also a way to see what's coming next. And another fun one that I also think is, is, is interesting in more ways than one uh, comes from media monks. This is another example that we can show, actually. Um, they made a game, and basically the game is uh, you combine video calls with some object recognition and the game goes like this. So the, the game says, OK, carrot, and then you have to go find a carrot in your house. And the first one that shows the carrot on screen is automatically best, uh, you know, connected. And then you get a point. So um, they played around with this only with their own staff, But if now put it public as well. So go to taskbit.net, invite your friends and you can play. I, mean, I love this idea. And um, I think right now, big tech is, of course, you know, laser focused on video communications, especially as the big five sort of completely missed the whole Zoom opportunity, and so they're innovating there now as well. And their innovations are uh, (coughs) a little bit smaller. Google this week can suppress sounds other than voice. Microsoft can blur a background, but I think we have a lot more coming that way. And I mean, I'm, I'm turning over to David because. As you might have noticed, my Snapchat filters didn't work work. on my computer, you know, but um, those filters, you know, apart from, yeah, I could be more beautiful, but the filters could also respond to my mood, they could provide more information to whoever I'm talking to. I mean, the face recognition software is getting so good, they can, they can, they know things. David, over to you, what do you think? What is your news of the week there?
3: Thank you, Monique. I love this idea of an AI avatar for all my work calls. I think I'm gonna invest in that. But then my question is, what happens if someone uses this poke under the table function? What does my AI avatar AI avatar do to that? But yes, look, we're all, as you said, we're all broadcasting our faces relentlessly over Zoom and, and everywhere else. The story I want to talk about this week or one of the two is IBM saying they are no longer going to work on or invest in or research or produce any facial recognition technology or software. They feel so strongly about this, in fact, that they've written to the US Congress saying there needs to be a serious national conversation about the use of facial recognition software by police, the use of it um, in surveillance context. It's pretty interesting when you get to a place where technology companies themselves are advocating for this kind of conversation and this kind of uh, regulation. And then, of course, we saw just yesterday uh, that Amazon are now saying they are going to put a hiatus, a pause, on allowing police to use their facial recognition technology in their work. So I think this is a very complex conversation. IBM are definitely right about one thing. There needs to be, and I'm sure there is, ahead a big conversation about the use of facial recognition technology in all kinds of social contexts from law enforcement from retailers in all kinds of surveillance contexts to um, we need to think carefully about that world we're entering and what it means for us and how it's going to work and what kind of how we want to regulate it we need to face those we need to face we need to face that discussion no pun intended um, okay look my second big story of the week uh, check this out what you're looking at now uh is a german startup that's all about the future of transport they're called lilium uh, and their view is that a massive part of the future of urban transport are these what you're seeing right now essentially flying cars um and they've just received a massive vote of confidence because bailey gifford the huge asset manager which is the second largest shareholder in tesla has just invested 35 million dollars in lilium so they can realise this uh, incredible future of transport. These are electric vehicles that are designed to carry a few people, um, kind of short hops uh, in, within cities or maybe longer journeys within regions from city to city. So what do you think? Are, are flying cars part of the future of urban transport? It sounds pretty far-fetched. On the other hand, if you have been talking about self-driving cars 10, 12 years ago, you would have said that sounds far-fetched. I think there is a lesson, though, from self-driving cars when it comes to all of this, which is, look, okay, the technology is being perfected. It's certainly not perfect yet in either case it's being perfected, but it's regulation uh, and it's city infrastructure that's going to be the bigger challenge here. Like, you know, how do we regulate? How do we organize socially around these new forms of transport Uh, and how do we build the infrastructure they require? So what do you think of that, Monique? Are flying cars coming to Amsterdam?
0: I think that's really the very, very last thing we need. Um, you know, bicycles. That's where I'm at. Oh, next week we'll talk about bicycles. Um, flying I think. Bicycles. Yeah, I think it's time for our next part of our show. And as promised, this week's star guest is superstar writer on technology and media, Douglas Rushkoff. And Douglas is host of the Team Human podcast, author of the book on the same name, And he is here to talk to us about why we all need to be on Team Human in 2020. So roll the credits.
3: Douglas, thank you so much for joining us. (laughs) (laughs) A massive part of your project is Team Human, there's the brilliant Team Human podcast, there's of course the Team Human book, Uh, and a huge part of what you're saying with that project, of course, is that we are trapped as people in structures all too often, whether it's structures of technology, whether it's markets, that are no longer serving the human project, so in fact... All too often you have uh, situations where people are being asked to serve technology or people are being asked to serve markets rather than markets and technologies serving us. To start though, I just want to rewind back to a brilliant story you tell in your book where you're you're sent to talk to a conference um, and you end up speaking to a small group of billionaires and all they want to ask you about is how do I hang on to my security staff and my staff, basically, um, when the event comes, when Armageddon comes. Uh, Do you think this is the Armageddon they were talking about? Do you think this is the moment it's all starting to fall apart?
2: Yeah, I mean, this is the moment it all starts to fall apart. It's not necessarily the moment they were talking about. because the moment they're talking about is a moment where everything falls apart, yet they, because of their, their privilege, are somehow able to insulate themselves from the reality that they're creating by earning money and the way they're doing it. In other words, their fantasy is to be able to build a car that could drive fast enough to escape their own exhaust, you know, or build a technology... That's alienating enough to distance them from the legacies of slavery and human suffering and uh, everything uh, that everything they've externalized, you know, all the damage and pain and destruction and environmental costs that they've externalized somehow becomes everyone else's problem. And they can they can go on. I mean, to to their in all fairness, they're really only as far as I could tell, they're only dedicating maybe 20 percent of their resources toward plan B, as it were, you know, the the escape plan. And, you know, 70 or 80 percent are really still committed to somehow this working out. So it's more uh, uh, an insurance plan than it is their main daily active concern. <laughs> Although I guess after COVID started and they began to experience themselves as over the lip of the strange attractor at the end of time, you know that the that we're at the beginning of the the first of many cascades. Whether it's COVID comes and before COVID's done, Ebola's here, and before Ebola's done, something else is here. Then there's the economic problem, and the race problem, and the gender problem, and the education problem, and then the climate problem, and then the water's going up. So it's like we're we're you know running around you know with masks, trying not to get COVID or Ebola at the same time that we're building. Um, a, dams to keep the water back at the same time that we're dealing with the, you know, the nuclear waste that's still pouring in from Fukushima. I mean, there's only so many global epic disasters that we can fend off simultaneously using aggressive Western science and engineering as our only tool.
3: Yeah. And this has been a great moment, hasn't it, for reminding all of us, even I suspect billionaires, that yeah, they're embedded in structures, in social structures, in, in structures of the natural world that y- you simply can't escape. And in fact, it's meaningless to talk about escaping from them. You know, we can't just sort of transcend nature. We're part of nature. And the virus is going to affect, you No, no matter how many billions you have. Actually- exactly. But that's why it's
2: interesting to look at the
3: virus and these other economic problems as wish fulfillment
2: for those who've been looking for excuses to separate from the human organism, from the natural organism. In other words, being on team human, being just one of us, one of us, as they chanted in the movie Freaks, right? Being just one of us is so horrific. You know, connecting with other people, uh, being moist and squishy and looking into people's (laughs) eyes and all that is so alien, you know, to, to a society. That, you know, in in Team Human, I trace it back. Uh, I mean, you could go all the way back to uh, the Axfield Age, you know, to to the 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 invention of the first, you know, homes or sedentary living. But I basically go back to Francis Bacon, who was the the father of empirical science. And when he described the promise of the scientific revolution in the Renaissance, he said it will allow us to take nature by the forelock, meaning by the hair, hold her down and submit her to our will. So what is that? It's a rape fantasy. So science is a rape fantasy that we're somehow going to subdue and control nature. And I think we've finally gotten to the place where we realize, oh, maybe nature's bigger than us. We're part of nature. We can't quite hold her down like that. That the only other creature that talks like that is cancer, right? Cells that grow out of control and ultimately kill their host through their desire for exponential growth.
0: Well, it's, it's a bit scary though, that, I mean, specifically this disease, COVID-19 or the Corona crisis, that what we need to fight it is being less human, no, no handshake, no hugs, keeping distance, you know, even the people that get the disease, they lose taste, they lose smell. It, it feels like we are being robbed of all our senses and our, you know, the most thing we want is we just huddle together and hold each other.
2: You know, keep your distance. Right. A- well, I mean, we've got to look at the crisis. I mean, the way I looked at at learning uh, uh, how to put my child to bed. You know, there's there's as any new parent will know. There's like this time, next time, and the meantime. Right. <laughs> there's this time. It's two in the morning. My kid won't go to bed. I've got to work. It's everybody's screaming. Okay, get in the bed with us. It's fine. Just do it. Right. And we know that when we let the child in the bed, it makes it harder. Right. So there's this time in this crisis, we'll let the child sleep in the bed. Then there's the meantime when we're going to do all these other things and try to retrain, reground stuff so that the next time there's a crisis, we don't have to take the child in the bed. So now it's with COVID. Right. We live in an antisocial, harsh um, harsh world with with you know um, global supply chains and a lack of resilience, high brittleness um, with with uh, uh, rapid and unsanitary urban industrialization in China and and um, just all of these these effects of of rampant runaway growth based global capitalism and it's like okay so right now we've got to dehumanize in order to not transmit this disease and to cure yeah. but then in the meantime we've got to rehumanize more than ever before we've got to reconnect with each other in ways that re-establish local resilience local business local manufacturing cottage industries circular economics um, uh, um, acknowledging climate all the stuff that we can't do right now because oh we're we're stuck in this cycle of, of just disinfecting ourselves you know we we If we don't do a course correction, as soon as we're allowed to come outside, then we're going to become like um, big agriculture in America, where we have uh, uh, crops and topsoil that are addicted to chemicals that come out of Monsanto. And we've got to reverse that because eventually the chemicals stop working, the stuff will stop growing.
3: Now, we have an audience of innovators watching, of marketers, of startup founders, you know, business professionals. So I'm super interested in what kinds of things we we can tell them or you, Douglas, can tell them that they should be doing. Like as Inna said right at the beginning, you know, way back in 98, you and some others advanced a critique of the Internet and online culture um, that was extremely prescient. Um, that wasn't really listened to, you know, we saw the 2010s, you know, we saw massive consolidation, we saw Facebook, we all know that story. Um, There's now a pretty established criticism of that story and the consolidation of of the digital space around a few giants, and there's this whole movement for humane technology. You're pretty critical of that movement too, though. So talk to us a bit about what what you think is wrong with with the mainstream kind of humane technology movement, and what you think innovators now should be building. I mean, you talked a bit about local things like that, but tell us more.
2: Right, I mean, it was a lot, there's a lot there. Um, there's a lot there,
3: yeah.
2: <laughs> I mean, to start, the, the, the reason why technology took its wrong turn, the reason why it's working against us rather than for us is because in the mid 90s, we surrendered digital technology to the needs of the marketplace, right? Where digital technology could have engendered a more circular economy a more distributed economy where we have lots of anybody with a laptop can make a business and start sharing and, 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 and doing things with each other. Um, wired magazine came along and decided, no, it's more important to figure out ways that digital technology can serve the stock market as it currently exists. So digital technology could be really good for creating short-term exponential growth for creating a few billionaires. So, uh, You know, founders, because they're just kids usually, they're 19, 20 years old, they're in college, and then a venture capitalist comes to them and looks at their technology the same way that the mob looks at a restaurant. This is a place to do money laundering. This is a place to do financialization, that your app, your platform is a good enough story for me to get hundreds of millions of dollars of investment, get 100x or 1000x return before the platform dies. Or if the platform gets a monopoly, then maybe um, something close to forever. So you end up with three or four players, you know, Facebook and Amazon and Google, and you get no longer, do you have technology um, uh, serving the economy? So what I would tell those founders is decide up front, are you interested in technology? Are you interested in the thing you do? Do you like the app? That you're making. And if you like it, think about what's the difference between running that company and selling that company. Once you sell it to Sequoia or Flatiron or the stock market, it's not your company, right? Your company is a story on debt at that point. Your company is a shill, and they're going to make you pivot and pivot and pivot, which just means taking the app that you were going to do and turning it into some form of uh, exponential surveillance capitalism. And no, your thing's not there anymore. Your your Twitter dream, your Facebook dream, all those, those are gone. And you're now serving a different thing. So you get that reversal. So the way to avoid that is to take as little money as possible at the lowest valuation possible. And I know that sounds bad. It sounds bad, but the idea, is the lower your valuation, the less money you take, then the less money you need to pay back. So if you make... $50 million, that might be considered good rather than bad. And then think about your own goals and expectations. Can you live with yourself if you only make 10 or $20 million? Can you are, Can you be okay with that? And you've got to really – okay. and I get it. I get it. It hurts. It's painful. It hurts. You're only going to have 10 or $20 million. That's all you're shooting for. You're never going to be Mark Zuckerberg. You're never going to join the eight zeros club or whatever. Can you go? Is that, and if you can somehow do the spiritual work that you need to, to lower your expectation, and this is real though, to I, really I do, do that, that work yeah. on yourself to be okay being a multimillionaire, then you're on the path to redemption and toward making positive technology. Now, my, my, I, I love Tristan and the people who are doing the humane technology movement. My, my concern is that most of the people who come from the humane technology movement are people who were involved in what's called captology, which is the study of how to addict people to technology or how to get people to do other behaviors with technology. That's what that that department at Stanford is about. And most of these folks, in their early years, they made all the addictive things. They're the people who ported the algorithms from Las Vegas slot machines into our, sm- into our smartphones, into our social media feeds. And now they feel guilty and terrible about it because they're seeing how they've destroyed so many lives and, and, and maybe, uh, and led to the election of Trump and Brexit. They did all these things they didn't realize because they weren't reading the Technorealism Manifesto and they were just children working for the man. So now they realize, oh my God, this is terrible. So what they want to do is say, well, all this behavioral modification power, we can turn it on its head. And instead of using it to oppress people, we can use it to upgrade people. And that's the language they use. They're going to upgrade humans to this other place. My problem with it is it's still coming from the perspective of how technology acts on people rather than what people can do with technology. So it still feels top down and and elitist and controlling to me that here are some admittedly, smarter, nicer white men with a better plan for how to make the world a better place. And they're going to do it to us. So when I hear humane technology, I think about um, uh, what comes to mind for me are the the eggs that I get from cage-free chickens. And they say, you know, humanely raised or humanely raised. I get a, a package of chicken. And it says humanely, humanely raised chicken. And I think, oh, so humane technology is going to treat humans more humanely, you know, as we extract their data and make all this money off them. You know, so it's still about how do we preserve this digital economy by doing other things to people rather than just unleashing the people.
0: If, if you look because this is this is very much a tech show if you look at i mean the, the whole world's in crisis it's also a time of, of innovation and things changing and new patterns what are the the tech examples that make you hopeful because i mean we can talk a lot about what 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 is miserable i mean government in some countries is certainly not going to help so Business has to do something, but what makes you hopeful? Where do you see things happening
2: that you think like, well, see, way um, to go!" Hopeful stuff is the people using the simplest technology to get the job done. You know, what makes me hopeful is seeing people using Google Docs instead of building websites and apps. You know, the the most effective um, the medical equipment distribution platform is a google doc that was created and the hospitals list themselves on the left column it's a it's a sheet and then the location of the hospital then what they need and then where to leave the um where to bring the supplies and the instructions of how to do it and each hospital each medical center has its own you know and meanwhile you know that doc is there that doc is working and i'm getting emails every day still from people oh i have an idea for an app and you enter in your zip code, whether you have supplies or need supplies, and then you pick from a list of what supplies. And it's like, we don't need an app for that. We've got a spreadsheet is really just fine for that. And these, these, um, and some of the things people are realizing. So there was a very well-meaning movement to make new ventilators using 3D printing. It was great. And we're going to distribute it. And then you make that piece and he'll make that piece and he'll make that piece. And it's like, we get all the 3D printers that we can going. And it's like, wow, I think we can get three of these made every 48 hours. You know, and it's like, how many do we need? Oh, we need 30,000 of them. And it's like, the good thing about it is we realize, oh, you know, there's a role for old industrial technology and new, that these different things are different. And a lot of the externalities of different Um, different platforms are being revealed to us. So I feel like we're in a crisis like this, when people just need the right tool to get the job done, we become less romantic in some ways and less futuristic about how we're doing things and, and much more, much more practical. We begin to see what's the bias of this medium. What is it good for? What is it not? Oh, let's not use that. Let's use this. So I, I, I see a, 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 an appropriately utilitarian response coming mm-hmm. up so the, the
0: minimal tech you know use the, the least you can use to do the, get the job done somebody's dying
2: let's what's going to work you know yeah. that, and that's the original hacker mentality right it's how do we use a piece of technology to solve a human problem now not i got this cool thing what could i convince people to use it for, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. which is the television era, which is we've got all these factories and we're going to create media in order to convince people to consume at a rate that will keep the economy growing. Now we understand, oh, like you were saying at the beginning, that is human beings serving the economy right? The idea, just the fact that we were going to send people, we are sending people back to work in the United States where they're going to risk getting COVID, not because we need the thing that those people are doing, but because we need those people to work at their jobs in order to justify letting them have food and shelter. And that's nuts, right? That's the ass backwardsness that, that hopefully we're, we're going to be able to
3: unwind. And do you think there's a chance right now to like recapture some of that early promise of sort of a, a, a truly more circular economy and platforms that distribute value? I mean, it, it kind of drives me crazy when I don't know, not many people do anymore, but when people describe Uber as like, I don't know, sharing economy or like, it's like, who's, who's, there's no sharing going on there really. Like, is there now a chance to build platforms that, you know, it stri- strikes me local is one opportunity and you talked about that sort of distribution of value rather than platforms that suck up all the value into the top of the pyramid is maybe another opportunity right now.
2: Yeah, I mean, these ideas tend to have kind of two different phases or two different expressions, all these kind of cooperative, circular, local, resilient, distributive, uh, economic and interpersonal models. You know, there's those of us who are privileged enough to imagine them. And to experiment with them in our little high tech or uh, high touch communities in you know Great Barrington, Massachusetts, or Ithaca, in New York. So, and we experiment and play and write books and 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 uh, uh, express these utopian visions for a more uh, cooperative, collaborative, team based human organism. Um, but where they actually come, where they actually happen, is. In the inner cities is the underprivileged, is because there's so little money and so few resources that people have got to get together, and solve their problems themselves. That no welfare state is coming, no Calvary, no assistance, no top-down aid. So what are we going to do? And you see, the most advanced cooperative movements are, you know, from the inner cities, from the Black Panthers, from the inner city Philadelphia. The, 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 the legacies of this work. And a lot of these groups have stayed functioning all this time, you know, with little notice from, you know, from writers like me who, you know, who, who tend to go towards, uh, um, uh, more coastal, uh, you know, and, and, uh, you know, erudite expressions of these things. But I mean, in the last couple of books, mm-hmm. when I do my research, I see, Oh, you know, uh, uh the people we've been ignoring most of the time are the ones who are the most advanced at these at these models of um, social and economic exchange, and we've got to start taking lessons from them, and you know, and stop thinking that we've got the one size fits all industrial age idea or band aid for everybody. That we've got the app or technology or code that if we could only scale it, you know, then everyone will be okay. It's like, no, it turns out scale is not the solution. Scale is the problem, you know, and that that locally, um, local and and highly um, diverse solutions for diverse situations are what's going to create the greatest um, cultural uh, uh, sustainability
3: and, and resilience. Okay, I really, really want to hear from the audience, because I'm sure we have yeah. some audience questions. Before we do that, though, I just want to launch an audience poll. I want to ask the audience something. I think the question we've got is pretty, is pretty broad. It's a pretty agricultural question uh, about the impact of technology on this moment. So I just want to launch a poll that asks people whether they think technology in this moment is having a beneficial effect or not. So go to the chat. You'll see the poll. Basically, you can vote for either technology is what's going to save us, or technology is going to be our doom, uh, and we will see the results at the end of the show. So technology is our saviour right now. Technology is going to lead to our doom right now. Which do you believe? You may be a more nuanced person who thinks it's somewhere between the two, but you're not allowed to say that, Uh. okay? We're talking (laughs) black and white now. Saviour or doom, that's what you need to vote. Um, But do we have any questions, I'm wondering, from the audience that we can ask? Aha, we do. Let me see here. So we've got a question from jacob and he says jacob says based on my opinion that we have a deep leadership crisis who do you think is capable of challenging the systemic problems in the united states or in the world for real do you have any role models
2: um alicia garza she's one of the founders of black lives matter in the states um honestly i mean in the u.s black women i mean and i hate to sound uh uh what, racially determinist about it, but um, I've been personally most inspired by the, the black female leaders that I've seen because they've got kind of a, you know, double or triple layer of oppression. And it's not just that they deserve a turn, but they, they, they understand the problem uh, experientially in ways that I can't. Um, and the fact that so many of them are have have emerged as loving, inclusive, open people that are tolerant of my ignorance and the slow baby steps that it takes me to fully, I'm just, you know, every day I'm like three more, oh, now I get it. Oh, no, no, now I get it. You know, and that they don't just want to slap me or if they do want to slap me that they haven't. Um, is it, but yeah, they're, they're, they're around, you know, that those are the kinds, I mean, she's a great uh, model of a sort of what I'm looking for um, in a leader. And, uh, you know, I've done a few panels and things with her and I have posed her some of the kind of stupid questions that I know are stupid even, and I'll see her, the way her body takes it in and she'll hear the stupid thing and she'll breathe She'll take a breath, then she'll smile. She'll look in my eyes, and then she'll start talking. And I'm like, "Oh wow!" Even just modeling—if I could just model that, <laughs> you know—I would be so much better off just through basic mimesis. So um, they're 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 around, but they're leaders that aren't that don't understand leadership the way that we're even phrasing leadership. You know, they understand leadership as an as a community embrace as. As as channeling something, as 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 uh, um, helping maybe refine a community urge or a larger emotion. It's a whole other um, capability. Um, so yeah, uh, they're around. So she's she's one. She's 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 a good a good enough a good enough name that I almost just want to give one.
3: We have a, thank yeah. you so much. We have a question from David. Uh, it's a pretty high-level question, this one. How do you balance the tension between the pragmatic and the idealistic? I mean, I guess we could refine it by saying, you know, is, is now a time for pragmatism or idealism? A lot of the stuff you were talking about before, you know, different local solutions depending on different local contexts, and we have to get rid of this idea of, like, one big solution that we kind of mastermind and impose. It sounds a, It sounds like pragmatism is a big part of your of what you prescribe right now,
2: is that fair? Yeah, um, the high level way of explaining, of answering that question is that we are, as a civilization, or certainly Western civilization, we are migrating from a television media environment to a digital media environment. The television media environment was global. It was watching the felling of the Berlin Wall together in real time, watching the moon landing, you know, um, uh, you know, even just the, Ronald Reagan saying, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall, was this unifying global event. Television is for ideology. It was, it was a great ideological medium because it's about fantasy and constructing a picture and narratives and storytelling. Um, digital, when we try to do ideology and digital, you get the Twitter wars, you get insanity, you get the Facebook silos. Ideology is the industrial age, television era approach to problem solving, where digital feels to me is much more hands-on maker. I mean, these are the digits, right? So it's it's a much more um, participatory, practical, localized, distributed approach to the world. Digital, it looks Global, but it actually expresses something very local because every laptop is a broadcast center. We're not just receiving centralized media in a in uh, in a distributed way. We are distributed uh, uh, distributed content creation. So yeah, I do think it becomes uh, much more practical and in some ways historically based because digital is so much about memory. Everything that happens on digital. Is in memory, so the, the we can access histories and memory that we couldn't access before, which again um, it, it connotes more of a, um, of a of a hands-on, practical approach to things. So, yeah, I would say that the 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 question that the television asks us is, "What do you believe?" And the question that digital asks us is, "What can you do?" You know, and so yeah, it's practical.
3: Monique, are you seeing anything interesting in the audience?
0: Many interesting questions, but I would also like to to put one forward Is uh, because we only have time for one or two more, I think. Um, it's about, th- this period um, is probably never ending, right? I mean, this is a, just a new reality that we're in, but what industries do you think will change the most? And I know you had some thoughts about education as well, because you know, in this digital, what you can do atmosphere, Education will change as well. Education was also a bit like television, broadcasting ideas and, you know, getting into the minds of people. What do you think? What will change?
2: Well, in some ways, we're going to realize what the value of face-to-face live contact and encounters was. You know, the Zoom is great for education of facts, great for transmitting data and the knowledge sets, and we're realizing, though, that what's missing is mimesis, with meaning the live encounter with the person. The reason you're in a classroom with a teacher is not to get information from that teacher, but to experience another human being in the process of learning and discovery. It's for kids to see what does a body look like when it is learning, when it is putting information together when it is making sense. And then you imitate that process in the room. It's not just what numbers are on the blackboard. It's what's happening. So in Zoom, we can do the numbers on the blackboard, but it's really hard to get that sense of live um, live imitation of another organism. And we also begin to realize that, oh, all of these subjects we're teaching kids in school, they're the excuse. They're not the the reason they're there. It's the excuse that they're there, partly because we need daycare, but really so that they can be in this social setting with a model human being who's, who's initiating them into a culture of learning. You know, that's what education was, you know, back to those great reversals you were talking about, you know, how we, how we serve the economy and we serve technology. Education was invented. Public education was compensation for a life of work. It was so that the coal miner would be able to come home after a long day of work, read a book, and, and experience that basic human dignity of having an intelligence and an, and an opinion of, to post-enlightenment understanding of the human. Now we look at education as preparation for the job, preparation for work. That's not what it's for. It was relief from work, not preparation for work. But we've got principals and and um, um, presidents of universities going to, to the CEOs of company to find out what do you want the workers to be able to do so that the corporation can externalize job training to the public sector rather than letting kids have this time to grow into thinking, thoughtful human beings.
3: Yeah. Yeah, here here to that. If there's if there's if there's one phenomenon I find more depressing than any other, it's the idea that higher education is is now intended to prepare you for a job. And all these young people that come to me and say, uh, yeah, like, uh, you know, I really want I love trends. I love, uh, you know, I want to study trends at university. And I'm like, please don't study trends at university.
2: You know, I know. I've gotten in trouble for this. I've gotten in trouble for this, but when I've I've been at you know these these talks or seminars that we do to try to you know get students to come to to, to CUNY to City University of New York, and when people ask me you know what jobs will I be um, uh, better equipped for after I've taken your classes, and I I say well actually um, I think you're gonna in some ways be less equipped for any of them you know uh, after taking you're gonna start questioning the value of all of them if you're actually educated.
3: Yeah, right. Okay, look, thank you so much. We need to be conscious of time. And before we let you go, there is one extra thing you need to do. Right. um, And that is travel to another planet (laughs) and make some decisions about how you want that planet to be. Uh, It is time for our regular Next World interview segment. So let's roll the credits for that.
1: Imagine this, it is the near future. Amid an increasingly acute crisis on planet Earth, not sure what you're talking about, a crack team of technologists finalizes a daring plan to start a new chapter of humanity. Along with 1,000 specially selected people, they will travel far beyond the solar system to the planet next one. There, there they will establish a permanent base, a new society, a new home for human beings. Douglas Rushkoff, thanks to your outstanding achievements in the fields of studying humans in the digital age, you have been chosen to be among the first 1,000 pioneers to travel to next one. But before you undertake your journey, you must answer five questions. Let's see question one. Name one luxury physical object you want to take to your new home. Um
2: I hope these don't get me kicked out. Um I'm <laughs> thinking a I would like a complete uh mushroom spore kit. All right. <laughs> you know, of all kinds of mushrooms cuz I feel like these the 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 sacred plant medicines um of earth shouldn't be left behind and I don't know if they're going to have mushrooms on on the new planet. So yeah, I want to bring a kit with like a variety of different teaching plants
1: all right i'll be interesting to <laughs> taste your mushroom soup there <laughs> so name one exceptional person who should qualify to me among the first 1000 pioneers
2: um if i had to pick one person honestly i think um we should select at least one person randomly probably more um because you know, I've been thinking about the citizen council concept of that Extinction Rebellion is putting forth, and the idea that rather than electing them, you pick them randomly to avoid sort of the biases, the existing biases that we have. Um, and I feel like unless we pick a couple of people randomly, we're going to end up without crucial things. We're going to have just some rich white dudes selecting. Who comes based on some great system they came up with, but those systems always leave something out. So I'll, I'll I want a random person generator to pick to pick my person.
1: I love the idea. Create one law that bans something from next one
2: forever. Um, if I got to go to one law, I'll go to Hillel, who when when he was asked to like describe the whole of Judaism. Like in standing on one leg, and he said, um, "Don't do anything to someone else that you wouldn't want done to yourself." You know, it's kind of the opposite of do unto others. It's more than negative. Refrain from doing something to someone else that you wouldn't do to yourself, um, and that would sort of be that would be my uh, single starting point. I mean, these are well, these are tricky. I know,
1: but we want to only take the best to our new planet. So okay. explain one truth about human nature or one ethical principle to live by that you have to learn, that you have learned from experience.
2: Well, I mean, I would say that what we have to learn is that in some ways is the folly of this thought experiment in some ways that you can never escape history. You know, you can't, there's no discontinuity. That where we're coming from, the stuff we've done, karma, is real. You know, that That in the West, we really like to believe that there's some way to start over. That we'll come to America, we'll go to California, we'll start, I mean, these guys want to start artificial islands in the middle of the ocean, and then it'll be perfect. That... It doesn't that it that it doesn't work that 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 we are part of a larger system and we can't um, spawn like that. Your children are connected to you. Your experiences are in their DNA. There's no there is no final escape. And I guess that's the truth about human nature: that you can't do anything new under the sun. That all we do is recycle the ideas of the past, the ideas of the gods. You know uh that you're you're part of a continuity
1: which is also soothing i think last week's pioneer was the futurist sahel in and he said that your first book on the internet was rejected because the publishers thought the internet would not be around for another year not sure if that's true but anyway he wants to know from you douglas what is the next forecasting error
2: um I think the big forecasting error people are making now is that the financial markets will function intact for another decade. You know, I think that there's a a what we're witnessing is in some is the end of capitalism as the dominant uh economic system and the realization that the real economy has been serving this artificial banking financialization economy for way too long and with too too negative effect. And uh, so many people are still betting so many trillions of dollars on the continuance of that thing, and it's detached itself. It's detached itself from reality and can be, doesn't matter how much money you have, it's how much skills and real resources you have. A lot of truth in
1: there. Last question for you, identify a question to ask our next week's pioneer, who will be British product designer Ben Sauer, um, who's proselyting that we have to slow down to speed up. What's your question for him?
2: Well, I mean, as long as we're slowing down in our development process, um, what I'm interested to know is how specifically can we incorporate social justice and specifically racial justice, into the design process. You know, I, I, I'm almost more interested in how, do, how we integrate it into the design process more than how do we integrate it into our designs. So when we're teaching design to young people, how do we fold in the social justice consciousness into that process? Where does it, where does it come in?
3: Thank, Thank you so you much. much. That was fascinating. I love the idea of a random person generator for next one. I think you're right. We we Absolutely. don't want just a thousand people with, you know, massive egos and all their books and everything. Not no present company <laughs> accepted, obviously, but we don't just want a thousand writers and uh, and, and keynote speakers. To be the next Can one you imagine a, Can planet, you imagine? Of ted, of, a planet of ted <laughs> exactly <movies>? i don't <laughs> even want to go I'll even to the, the journey there would be like murder <laughs> yeah exactly um, we have to wrap up super quickly but before we do let's find out what the audience said is technology our savior right now or is it our doom you what did they say
1: uh it's a little bit like business as usual the audience is more or less 50 50 so 46% think tech will save us and the rest of them will tech will doom
3: us. Okay, well, I'm glad we found a, another way to polarize people in our own small way on this show. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's all about all we have time for, right, Monique?
0: Uh, absolutely. We hope to see you again next week. And, uh, you know, thank you so much, Douglas. And Ina, up to you to read us out.
1: Thank you so much for watching the show today. And thank you douglas for all your super interesting remarks next week we will be back with a very interesting guest from the uk Ben Sauer. he is a product designer and design strategist or as he calls himself an opportunity detective he loves to find ways in which digital products can better meet the needs of people so next week we will talk to him about how to design change This show is made possible by our hosting partners Accenture Interactive and Factor 3 and with support of the video platform 23. Thanks to everyone involved in planning, organizing and producing the show, especially to the next team and my fellow hosts. And of course, to our great speakers and to you, our audience. See you next week.